What up all you Yiddish and Skittish listeners and welcome to The World is My Burrito, that's Twimby for short, a podcast where I unwrap the complex history and pop culture burrito, separate the ingredients, roll it up, pack it in, now let us begin. As always, it's your boy Corey T coming at you with episode 9, recorded on September 17th, 2021. And today I'm finally covering more Message to Adolf by Osamu Tezuka. If you haven't listened to part 1 yet, pause here, then go back to episode 5, which contains necessary story and relevant historical information. That said, this is also your lazy spoiler warning because this burrito is getting reheated. Before we hop right in, let's clean this kitchen. I'm slowly but surely taking quality of life and organizational steps that should allow me to release episodes more frequently, while also providing some newer, greater level content than before. Even while preparing for this episode, I prepared for and released the Let's Talk About It episode with Eric, and have been prepping for another secret project that will take more time to come to fruition. While the goal of this podcast is very personal, it should inevitably reach Patreon-worthy content that more listeners outside of my mom will take seriously. Secondly, some weeks ago I asked my listeners what topic they would like me to cover in celebration of spooky season, and was promptly flooded with responses. I mean, just Riverside after Hurricane Irma flooded. So, of the five suggestions, I picked Hellraiser, which was recommended by Bob from Straight Chilling Podcast. Don't fret the rest of you. Uh, one of the suggestions is already a part of a bigger project, while another has now been added to said project. Uh, and Hellraiser seemed to be just simple enough for me to overcomplicate. Yes, this means the final part of Message to Adolf will not be the next episode. Thirdly, we're going off format a little bit because of some changes concerning my source material. In the previous episode, I read from part one of five from the Cadence publication. Snagging all five volumes is pretty pricey, and as aesthetics go, their covers are absolute trash. This and the final part will be from Vertical Inc.'s two-volume collection released in 2012. Volume 1 consists of 647 pages across 17 chapters. If you're reading along, my previous episode covered the first six chapters. Now we're beginning chapter 7 on page 262. Enough of that. Strap onto your nearest toilet because this burrito is absolutely stuffed with an extra serving of spicy history. Uh, chapter 7 begins by briefly mentioning events of the Second Sino-Japanese War, Japan's incursion on the Asian continent, and several Pacific islands, which took place between 1937 and 1945, with some shenanigans going back as far as 1931. The three specific locations mentioned are Nanjing, the Battle of Shuzhou, and the Canton Operation. Though Tezuka doesn't detail these topics, probably because these are very well-known points of history among the Japanese, let's break down this single page anyways. The events in order are the Nanjing Massacre of Winter 87 into early 88 involved the widespread rape, murder, and looting of between 40,000 and 300,000 unarmed Chinese in Nanjing. Uh, I believe this was the same time where there were literal games made out of murdering people. 
These atrocities included but weren't limited to the elderly, women, children, disabled. You name it, they killed it. Uh, the reason this number is so vastly different is partially due to the Japanese not recording every action and them setting fire to a lot of records around the time that they officially surrendered. Uh, to this day, there's still a lot of contention between Japan and China about this singular event. Following this was the Battle of Shuzhou in spring of 88, which was both a step further inland and a means of preventing the Chinese military from withdrawing further west. Finally, the Canton operation in South China in the winter of 88. Canton, actually named Guangzhou, is a port city that supplied China with food, military supplies, and contact with the outside world. So it was a primo target to cut China off from any hope. Hopefully this gives you a glimpse into why he didn't feel the need to expound. Immediately after this, Tezuka goes into some detail about the actual state of Japanese soldiers' health versus the propaganda the government was feeding the public. Namely, that everything was super amazing in China, uh, the soldiers were doing great and not to be worried. Now, this particular topic was difficult to find specific history on. Uh, Tezuka mentions how soldiers were suffering from exhaustion and supply shortages as they overextended in China. But when checking out Wikipedia or articles or research papers, all I could find were Japan's mainland policies concerning rationing to the general public with only the briefest of mention about starvation of soldiers. It's also mentioned that Japanese citizens who doubted the success of the military were arrested or branded as non-citizens. Being that I live in America, any term I search either resulted in American concentration camps or general Japanese nationalism history. A uh, bit of a bummer, because I'd love to know more about this. Most of the relevant history this book touches on actually comes from the final chapter, and it's all about the Jews' need to escape. Hey, do you know exactly why the Jews needed to evacuate Poland? Because I didn't. Uh, on the 23rd of August, 1939, the Germans and Soviet Union signed the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, a non-aggression pact between the powers. What they also did was divvy up some of the land separating the powers. You take this land, we'll take this land. Unfortunately, neither of them informed the current occupants of that land. Enter Poland. Just one week after this pact was signed... Germany invaded from almost every side. The Polish attempted to defend, but got another surprise some two weeks later when the Soviet Union attacked from everywhere Germany hadn't. Hey, if you thought there wasn't enough meat in this burrito, don't worry, I paid for extra. The final and most complex bit of history mentioned comes down to the Jewish evacuation routes and destinations. I'm going to mention three routes, but cover two just so you can understand the dumb shit they had to face just to survive. The only destination mentioned in this volume is Shanghai. Now, why Shanghai? Hey, that's not a short answer. Well, Shanghai was already home to British, French, Americans, Russians, and Iraqi and did not require a visa for residency. 
More importantly, Shanghai already had a 10-year-old Russian Jewish community by the 1930s. Between 33 and 41, over 20,000 Jews sought refuge in Shanghai. More, more importantly, if you recall in episode 5, I mentioned the weird relationship the Japanese had with the Jews. Enter Inuzuka Kodashige Taisa, or Colonel Inuzuka, the head of the Japanese Imperial Navy's Advisory Bureau on Jewish Affairs. This guy believed that assisting the Jews would greatly benefit Japan by possible means of monetary support from wealthy foreign Jews who weren't being oppressed, and by means of general Western power favor. But let's not forget that this is a weird relationship that's weird with an H. Colonel Inuzuka believed in the Tsarist conspiracy that the Jews had this plan to covertly conquer the entire world using their financial and political power, much like a poison. So he officially called this plan to assist the Jews the Fugu Keikak, or Fugu Plan. Fugu is Japanese for pufferfish. Homeboy's approach was, the Jews are going to be cool with us even after they take over the world. Anyways, he did do a lot of work in both Shanghai and Manchuria during the Sino-Japanese War to see that Jews were safe, uh, provided autonomy, allowed to prosper, and able to travel to Japan. Now, how did anyone get anywhere? Let's find out. There are at least two and a half routes to get out of Poland and into Shanghai or Japan. We're going to blaze over Route 1 because it isn't referenced in this volume. During the earliest evacuations, the Jews could travel southwest from Poland toward a ship in Genoa, float through the Suez Canal in Egypt, stop at Colombo, Sri Lanka, then off to Manila, Philippines for a pina colada, then comes Hong Kong, finally docking in Shanghai. This is a three-week ordeal. Route 2 to Shanghai. For whatever reason, while there are tons of articles and papers providing so much information about super niche topics concerning the Jewish escape to Shanghai, the exact route to Shanghai isn't mentioned. Seriously, some of these went into detail in minutia about how Jews got visas, where they could go with the visas, how much they cost, yada, yada, yada. The only thing mentioned about this right is the Trans-Siberian Train, which catapults me to number three, the route that takes them to Japan and subsequently Kobe. Exit Poland to Lithuania in the northeast, take the Trans-Siberian Train to Hotel Novomoskovskaya, or Hotel New Moscow, shortstop in the established Jewish community of Birobidzen, Russia, cross one border to Kabarovsk, have all of their money and valuables confiscated by the Soviets, board a boat to Tsuruga, Japan, where they could finally take a train to Kobe. If you caught that little note, what I'm saying is that every Jew that took this route was a pauper by the time they entered Japan. There is seriously a lot more going on here. Uh, I could easily do another half hour just talking about the intricacies of Jewish evacuation, who was involved, when and where they were involved, but even I have limitations. There's no book history this time because I covered it last time, so let's move on to this whack story. Last we spoke, 
Adolf was forcefully taken from his friend Adolf to serve under Adolf. Now that we're on the same page, chapter 7 begins sometime in 1938, and we are mostly focusing on journalist Sohei Toge, who occupies eight and a half of the ten remaining chapters. It's nighttime, and we're in a dimly lit warehouse with a small group discussing the current state of politics, particularly how the government is becoming more extreme by labeling anyone who doesn't believe 100% of everything they say, like this group, as communists. Then they reintroduce Miss Augie. Now, Miss Augie was a character in the previous chapters who went unmentioned because she served such a very small role. Uh, she was Adolf Camille's teacher in like one chapter and was being observed by the special police because she writes anti war poetry. Uh, some years prior to that, she was the teacher of Tolge's younger brother, Isao and was the recipient of the birthright documents Toge is being hunted and tortured for. Are your connective tissue senses tingling? Good. Back to the meeting. Miss Olgi briefly shows her documents to the leader, who is amazed by what he sees, and understands their importance when their scout notices they're about to be raided by the police. As everyone scurries out, the leader tells Miss Olgi to hold back so they don't capture her and associate her with that group, particularly with these important papers. She does escape the raid, but, of course, they know what's up. She arrives home and is greeted by a shadowy figure. It's Toge! He explains his relation to Isao before mentioning some mysterious important documents that were sent to Japan, but he has no idea to where or to whom. She offers up the parcel Isao sent her, and, lo and behold, they are the birthright documents proving Hitler is a Jew. Olgi doesn't know what to do with these, so she gives them to Toge, and they part ways. Surprise again! The special police were waiting outside, and no Toge was handed something important. Toge denies it, but after Inspector Akabane threatens to throw Toge in jail, just because he can, Toge knees him in the groin, then makes a break for it. What follows is a genuinely fun chase sequence. Uh, he runs off only to be ambushed in that direction. So he hails a taxi, hops in one door, gives the guy some cash to drive, then hops out the other side. The cops follow suit. Toge slowly walks to the nearest train station only to find the last passenger train had already left. Go figure. The special police are right behind him. He makes a break over the guardrails and books it down the tracks. Remember, our boy is a professional runner. He makes it a ways away, then ducks around a corner, guessing the fuzz will be waiting for him outside the tunnel. Off in the distance, he hears a noise, a late-night freight car. He throws his coat onto the tracks to slow it, then hops on top. The train reaches the outside and is still stopped by the special police who search it inside and out, top to bottom, but to no avail. Using some real smartly done drawing, it turns out our boy was hanging onto a railing that just so happened to be above the stopped train. Through a series of events, he ends up in the presence of Ms. Kaufman, who lends him money for a taxi. The following day, he returns it, is invited inside, learns her story and her son's affiliation with the Hitler Youth, then leaves to be publicly greeted by the special police. 
He's taken to an interrogation chamber, gets the absolute tar beaten out of him again, this time by Inspector Akabane, then ends up in the care of Ms. Kaufman. After he heals, we spend the next 50 pages watching as he attempts to get back into daily life, but is fired from his job. The constant hounding by the special police sees to it that he gets kicked out of his apartment and can't get another or even get another job. He reaches a point where he can only do day labor in the slums, and even that manages to be taken from him. The end result is Detective Akabane confronting Toge on a rainy day in a literal pile of trash. A fist fight and more break out, Akabane is hospitalized, and Toge is taken to jail again. This encompasses the better part of a year, which takes us to... August 1939 in Germany. This is a short chapter, only 16 pages, covering Adolf Kaufman's struggles at school. He is very successful and astute in studies and attendance, even so much as being granted an audience with Hitler himself to receive an honor badge. But his lack of enthusiasm against Jews bring up doubts in his superiors' minds. He returns to reading Mein Kampf, but swears he'll never hate his friend Adolf. He meets with Hitler, hears Hitler's story, then returns to his room and has an existential crisis. Adolf is now confused about who he is, but is certain he only wants to be German, particularly because the Japanese are a second-rate race in Mein Kampf. The chapter ends with Hitler declaring war on and attacking Poland. Back to Toge and another jail cell. And honestly, while this is an action-packed story, we're going to fast-forward through a lot of this section because it is very dense and introduces many temporary yet important characters. Toge meets a detective who believes his innocence and wants to see his case through to the end. Acetylene Lamp, the German who tortured Toge in our previous episode, comes into play. Miss Ogi and Inspector Akabane come back into play. A lot of traveling transpires. There's a shootout on a deserted island. Miss Ogi and Inspector Akabane go out of play again. One of them forever. Some potential wives appear. Tezuko makes a cameo as a taxi driver. Now we're on to a small but important plot point. Miss Ogi ends up with Hitler's birthright once again and turns them over to Adolf Camille since his father is so heavily associated with the Jews' relocation to Kobe. This allows for a very smooth transition to the end of the volume. Isaac Camille, Adolf's father, is selected by the local Jewish organization to go to Lithuania to bring home 500 Jews since he has a contact at the Kovno Consulate. Once they reach Shanghai, he would involve Colonel Inuzuka from our history section to pull strings with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to get the Jews accepted. What could go wrong? Let's find out. Shortly after he makes arrangements with the synagogue in Lithuania, he is pickpocketed of his identification and Japanese residency papers. Bad news for a Jew. He's caught in an off-limits area by Germans and thrown in the back of a truck with a bunch of other escaped Jews without paperwork. This truck is conveniently hauled to a concentration camp where Adolf Kaufman's school happens to be visiting. The refugees are put on display for the children. 
Isaac calls out to Adolf, is silenced, then immediately led away. Much of what happens throughout this chapter focuses heavily on some of the German kids poking fun at and playing pranks on Adolf for being half inferior. We get to see some of their daily life. Adolf falls in love with a young Jewish girl because, of course, he's blackmailed by one of the students for this. Then, at random, he is selected along with several other half-Germans for an allegiance drill. The three children are taken to a forest outside the school grounds where they're made to wait for a truck to arrive. The truck unloads and several people walk out and are made to stand against a wall. All Jews, one of whom is Isaac Camille. The boys are each given a gun and ordered to kill several Jews. In an act of desperation or just command, Adolf chooses Isaac. He misses hitting him in the shoulder. Isaac attempts to crawl away when Adolf shoots him again in the back. The instructor reprimands Adolf for his poor marksmanship and orders him to shoot the Jew in the head. He does this, finally killing Isaac, then is ordered to shoot another, but not to miss this time. The young lady cries, long live freedom, before receiving a shot to the head. Adolf walks away from the range and pukes next to a tree while the other boys take their shots. And while a different officer reassures him, don't worry, in less than a year, you'll be able to kill with a cool head. The final scene is a pile of bodies in a hole. End volume one. So for likes and dislikes, um, when Adolf first reads Mein Kampf, all of the speech bubbles are kind of melting, which I took to represent either his own sweat from reading something he doesn't believe in, or that he is reading something disgusting. Uh, the allegiance drill is definitely the hardest part of the story to read, especially because it kind of comes out of nowhere for the reader and Adolf. Like, they show that he's in the middle of dreaming about the Jewish girl he likes, then suddenly we're just in the middle of a mess hall and he's being called upon. Even in real life, that type of call would always have felt sudden, so there's no real reason to go about his every action between these two panels. My last like is also going to lead to the dislikes. There are a lot of side stories that occur here. This episode crosses 385 pages, if that gives you any idea of how much I left for you to discover. Not all of these side stories are necessary within this volume, but they take you to many different locations and allow you to experience the effects of the war, the racism, the fear, the oppression at many levels uh, from many different types of people and more. There are plenty of these stories that feel like Toge is solely being used as a vehicle to tell other stories or just kind of show you around Japan. So the dislike of this, uh, several of the vehicles or unrelated stories involve several people falling head over heels for Toge within seconds of meeting him. One of the interested parties does serve a purpose both for the plot and as a visual example of a nationalistic identity crisis people might have gone through during this time. But the other two were completely unrewarded. As in, if their interests were completely removed, we would still get the same story. 
there is another volume, so we'll see what happens. Maybe this will change. As for what I learned, uh, the steps Jews had to take to get out of Poland were tedious. From acquiring different types of visas and paying to go so far only to have their money confiscated, then having to rely on various international Jewish organizations to pay to move them around, on top of the various routes taken, was pretty mind-numbing, and it involved a hell of a lot of faith. Uh, it was insane to learn that even a wealthy family would be broke as a joke by the time they hit the Japanese coast, and it all came down to the Soviets taking money or the Germans restricting access to money. Um, all of this was before 41, when it became almost impossible to move Jews anywhere for any reason. Among the complexities of visas, I did find something that said if you got a visa to, I think it was like, Curaçao, then you could get out of Germany, but not out of Japan. Um, there were some weird technicalities in there. Learning more about the weird relationship between the Japanese and the Jews was also wild. I mean, one of the Jews' greatest allies in the 30s was a dude who thought they were going to take over the world and just didn't want to be on their bad side. Even after the war was over, he continued to assist the Jews in Japan in many ways. So, I don't know. Good for him. Alright folks, now it's time for everyone's favorite part of the show. Nacho business, because it's my business. As mentioned in my Green Knight episode, I've recently moved. All the preparations that went into moving, followed by everything that comes after, opened up a ton of free time, which I've spent reading excessively. Uh, the Hellraiser pick inspired me to start reading some Clive Barker. Not Hellbound Heart, because that lament configuration shouldn't be cracked open yet. Instead, I started with the anthology series Books of Blood and have finished volumes 1, 2, 5, and am currently reading 3. Barker's got a really great writing style, uh, and his content varies from uh, like horror to psychological terror to like genuinely fun. Uh, I would absolutely recommend Books of Blood Volume 1, and if you like that, just go ahead and move on to 2. There are 6 volumes total, and you can find them collected in 2 volumes. It might be difficult, but they're out there. With any luck, I plan on knocking out a few horror books this season. Aside from the various Hellraiser titles, I'm aiming at Tommyknockers by Stephen King, and hopefully one more among a list of horror books recommended to me. Uh, on the manga end, uh, in the last month I finished about 500 chapters, and I would recommend reading JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Uh, the, the manga is very intriguing because it is almost identical, like scene for scene, to the anime, yet because of the medium, so much is different. Um, there's a lot more drama uh, and kind of a lot less humor, and again, like, there's nothing that's really different except the medium. But since I got all of the just like reading everything out of my stream, now I can focus on more seasonally appropriate titles like Blood on the Tracks, the psychological thriller manga by Oshimi Shuzo, uh, which I'm super excited to read. Um, as of today, I think I read like four chapters of it and I'm, I'm really loving it and I'm hoping the rest of the series pays off in the same way. 
All right, guys, it's time for some plugs so you can sleep off the itis from this burrito. The new mini season of Podcasters Assemble is about to get started covering the Ghostbusters franchise. For the uninitiated, this is a public submission podcast, meaning anyone can participate as much or little as they want. Instructions can be found at probablywork.com and any of their social media outlets. Just search Podcasters Assemble. You can also give any episode a listen just to kind of give an idea of what we do. It's really easy to follow. If you want to check out my photo work, search the letters K-T-O-R-J on any social media platform and you'll find me. Uh, if you haven't yet, be sure to find Twinby Podcasts on any social media platform uh, just to keep updated with any news, polls, requests, and my innermost thoughts. You can also reach out to me at twinbeepodcast at gmail.com if you just want something that's a lot more direct. I still don't have a sign-off, and God knows my next music project has nothing to do with me, so 